We've been looking these last five weeks at the book of Ruth, and I hope some of you got your 12 and a half minutes of reading exercise in sometime a few weeks ago and read through it. Uh, and we've just been really working our way through. But just in case you picked it up uh, this week for the first time, if you're new, maybe you're just like, what is this all about? Let's just give you a little quick recap. So Ruth is about a, a family, really. It's a book in the Old Testament. The mom uh, is called Naomi. Uh, she has a husband called Elimelech, and they have two sons. And in a time of crisis, a time of famine, they leave their home in the little town of Bethlehem from Christmas fame, and they go and live in what is then the enemy land of Moab. And they go in search of food, probably with real hope, but tragedy strikes them, and Elimelech, the dad, dies, the two sons die, leaving behind Naomi, the mom, and then two daughters-in-law. It's a really painful story at first. Chapter one is just so full of brokenness. It's full of bitterness. If you remember back a few weeks ago, like Naomi actually changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And really, this is like a story about like, where God is in the midst of disappointment, in the tragedies and in the losses. I, I can just imagine Naomi just standing there going like, well, what on earth has happened here? Like, this is not what I prayed for. This is not what I hoped for. This is not my dream for life. This is not my dream for my family. This is not how it was supposed to be. And God, where are you? Like, where are you? What have you done? Where have you gone? In fact, she makes a staggering claim. Her claim is this, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Where are you, God? Why didn't you intervene when I prayed? But I suppose the question is, right, is Naomi correct? Is Naomi right? Is God behind all the evil in the world? Now, let's just admit at the beginning of this talk that there is a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot that we need to say about suffering that there's no way we can say within the space of one sermon. Some of us in this room this morning are wrestling with intense and immense suffering, and I don't think anybody could ever give you a trite and neat answer. Anyone who ever tries to give you a trite and neat answer to suffering is not giving you the whole story. But I think the Bible does have a lot to say, and, and I want to give you just some hints, some ideas, some themes, some things that the Bible does say to help us along the way. But I also want to point you, um, as Laura and John did, toward Alpha, because if this is your story, if you have big questions in this area, there's probably no better way to wrestle with them that I know of than coming on Alpha, where you can talk with others, wrestle, discuss through some of those questions. So let me just give you like a 30,000 footer this morning about the idea of suffering and pain. And I don't want to overly simplify it, but I do want to just launch in by simply saying this, God is not the source of evil. God is not any source of evil. Naomi did not have it right in chapter one. Evil is an intrusion into God's creation. When Jesus comes to earth, he spends his whole life, his whole ministry opposing evil. He fights injustice. He heals. He shines light into the very darkest places. Please, please, would you hear that God is not a moral monster? But maybe I want to say to you controversially, God does not always get his way on earth today. Now, before you leave, let, let me just explain what I mean. There are, what I mean is that there are things that happen on earth all around us every day which are not God's intention and good designs for the world. 
God is not complicit with evil. He is against it. Pain, misery, loss, disease are not God's will. Jesus never says, this is your will. This is my will for your life. In fact, wherever you see Jesus confronted by loss and pain, you see him moved and act. I love and I'm always touched by this little verse when Jesus confronts the death of his friend Lazarus. It just simply says, Jesus wept. And not actually just that Jesus wept, but Jesus healed and brought him back to life and transformed. So if suffering and pain do not come from God, well, can we make anything of a claim about where they come from? Does the Bible give us anything to help us along the way? And I want to say, yes, the Bible gives us four areas, four things, four reasons for where tough things might emerge for. And the first one is free will. Free will. See, one of the most strong tenets of the Christian faith is that God is love. God is love. The reason that we exist as human beings is because God, out of his great love to create, created human beings to be in relationship with him. And he said to them, like, I love you. My children, I love you. But of course, for that to mean anything, there has to be free will involved. Like, I can say to my wife, Laura, or I can say to my kids, I love you and you must love me. But honestly, that doesn't really work. Not that I've tried it, just to be honest. <laughs> but if I try and demand love of another, then that actually is coercion or maybe even abusive. As Blaise Pascal says, we as humans have the dignity of causality. Like We are given freedom to choose how to live, whether to love. In fact, every single day, every one of us has the choice toward acts of love and justice and kindness. And we have the, the choice of acts of evil and injustice. And and just to be clear, it's not even that therefore there are good people and bad people. Those people are okay, those people are not. But it's actually that the line separating good and evil runs through every single heart, through every choice. And if you're like me, some days you'll get it really good, and some days you'll mess it up. I remember, um, remember being 20 years old, and I'd saved up money to buy my first proper car. Um, and I was staying with my parents in the, was the university summer holidays. I was staying with them in the south of England. And this car was like right up in the north of England. And so it was like the day before college was due to start again, I took the train like four or five hours right the way to the other end of England. That's a huge journey for English people. For you lot, it's like lunch, right? <laughs> But I got all the way up and I got this car and it was everything I hoped and I drove it back to my parents' house and I loaded it up with all my stuff ready for the start of the university term. I put my big old TV in the back of it. You remember those ones that were like the sounds of a house? And then I put in like my musical instruments and my clothes and all my stuff. And the next morning I, I drove back towards my college campus. And I was going past this city called Oxford and there's this like these sort of two lane highway, two lanes on each side. And I got to the bottom of this big hill, and, and on the inside lane were all these big trucks, like, going very slowly up the hill. And in the outside lane were all the cars, like, trying to overtake them. And, and just as I got to the bottom of the hill, this truck sort of decided it was going to pull out right in front of me. And I thought, but my, my inner moment in that moment was like, no, like, no way. Like, you know, I'm not sitting in my new car at 30 miles an hour going up this hill. Like, I will stop you doing this. And so my instant choice was to accelerate as fast as I could to try and stop him pulling out. 
The only problem was that as I accelerated as fast as I could, all the cars in the outside lane in front of me all stood on their brakes as hard as they could. Like, I didn't stop even close to the car in front. In fact, I took the car in front out, and then I took the car in front of that one out as well. Now, thankfully, no one was hurt. But as I stood at the side of that highway waiting for the police to turn up on the tow truck driver, like, my questions were buzzing around my head. Lord, why did you allow this to happen? Is it, is it that you want me to evangelize to the tow truck driver? Have you brought me here so that I can tell him about the good news of Jesus on the side of the A34? Is this why I'm here, Lord? Or is it because you don't want me back at university? Have you got great plans for my life to go somewhere else this year? Like, these are my big theological questions. Probably a couple of days later, if I'm honest, I had to admit that maybe I just messed it up. <laughs> that maybe I just made a bad choice that maybe I shouldn't have tried to aggressively stop this truck pulling out. Like sometimes, if we're really honest, we do just make bad choices. We make dumb decisions. We hurt ourselves. We hurt others around us. We've probably, in our lives, been recipients of that, and we've been givers of that. We see it throughout the book of Ruth, particularly with the Elimelech in chapter 1. Like some things are just bad choices. But I don't think that's enough, is it? That's not enough to say that's the only reason that bad stuff happens because actually the Bible tells us repeatedly about the problem of evil. On almost page one, all the way through to pretty much the last page, we are confronted with the evil one. We're confronted with an enemy. I don't know what the picture you have of the devil is. Maybe it's some sort of like cartoon sort of idea, something like this. I don't know what, what crops up in your mind. But there's something a lot actually different which we're told about, named in the Garden of Eden, named by Jesus, named in the book of Revelation. In fact, Paul in the early church, he actually says like, guys, church, you need to know that your struggle, it's not actually against flesh and blood. It's not against human beings. It's against the powers of the dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Like that's, that's actually the, the primary battle that you're facing. Jesus calls, calls the enemy, the devil, he calls him the thief. The thief who comes to rob and destroy, to damage, to divide, to oppose God's good, loving plans. Now, we could talk about this for weeks, but what I do just want to simply say is that we do live on the right side of the cross. You see, even though the devil is real, even though he can cause havoc and pain, I don't want any of us to ever get obsessed by evil because actually we live with a defeated foe because of the cross. Because of what Jesus does, actually, the devil will not ever get the last laugh in the story. Even though he can cause havoc, he will never ultimately win. But we feel his effects. We feel it all around us a lot of the time. So there is free will. There is a spiritual enemy. Thirdly, though, which is maybe the next step in the same journey, that there is a brokenness to the created order. The Bible actually talks about it, that the world today is groaning. It's yearning for the return of Christ. It seems that like what happens in Genesis 3 when, when the world got broken wasn't just on a relational level between us and God, but actually in the fabric of the story, in the fabric of creation, something broke along the way. 
You know, if you want to ask the question, well, where does cancer come from? Where does earthquakes come from? Where do these seemingly senseless things happen which we don't really seem to have any control of? Why could God have allowed that? Well, it seems that there is something in the ground that is broken, something in the created order that's waiting to be redeemed. Now, sometimes Christians use this as a way to get out of having any responsibility for creation or caring for the planet. And I think that's just terrible theology. But we can say that something is deeply just broken right below us, right around us. We live in a contact sport where actually just living on the planet means we will get bruised from time to time. So we live in a broken world. But then fourthly, and I want you to hear this correctly and not incorrectly. So I will say this carefully. Very, 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 very rarely, God will allow something tough to happen. Now, this is a huge question, and I don't want to overly simplify it, but sometimes throughout Scripture, God does allow something really tough to happen for a purpose. For a purpose. It's not because he's evil. It's not because he's trying to be vindictive or he had a bad day, but because actually he's trying to correct something because he's bringing justice out of a great evil, because he's trying to turn someone around to a better pathway. You think about Paul, who's described, uh, called Saul at the beginning of his life, who's persecuting Christians, who's like out to get rid of Christianity. And you think about what God does, actually he allows Saul to be blinded temporarily at the side of a road. I mean, that's pretty tough, but he does it for a purpose. He does it to bring about change. He does it because he wants Paul to become who he's meant to be. He does it to bring him to a new understanding of truth and love. You see it in the Israelites. You see it other places in scripture where, where actually God out of like loving kindness of a father will actually allow tough things to happen to bring transformation. Now, I know, and probably we all feel it, it's quite hard to work out which of those four things are going on at once in any situation. But what I do want you to hear and not get lost down the rabbit hole, I do want you to hear that God is always working out of love. God always works from love. And he always works. You see, if we can say, well, God doesn't cause all the bad things that happen in the world, then we might therefore need to ask, well, what is God going to do about it? Right? Is God just the kind of God who, who like winds up the mechanical clock called the world, called the universe, and just sets it off and goes and hangs out somewhere else? Does God actually care when suffering happens? Like you can almost sense those questions in Naomi, can't you? Like, where are you? Why didn't you do something to intervene in this senseless pain? Where are you when my life feels like plan B, C, D, F, G, Z, whatever? Well, the good news is, is that Ruth gives us the answer. The book of Ruth gives us an insight. It gives us an insight. It gives us, in a way, God's response to suffering, disappointment, tragedy. And we're going to read in a moment from Ruth 4, uh, 9 through 17. But before we read it, I want you to just hear simply this. God is right there in the middle of it. God is right in the middle of pain. God is there right in the middle of every moment of suffering, caring, loving, and doing something about it. So let's read. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to read from Ruth chapter 4, 9 through 17. 
uh, and Nero's going to come and bring it. Ruth chapter 4, 9 through 17. Ruth chapter 4 and verses 9 through 17. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi and all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malin. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malin's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathath and the famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better than, to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The Lord of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right, so chapter one, brokenness, bitterness, pain. Uh, In that culture, in that moment of history, to have no land, have no family, means no 401k, no seeming way out of the situation. It feels quite desperate, I imagine. But here we are in chapter four and suddenly things look hopeful. They seem joyful. We see like how God is outworking a great and wonderful plan. Now, Jacinta did a really good job last week of reminding us that this can feel quite weird, this story, to those of us with 21st century ears. Uh, One commentator said, this is like almost reading a bad version of Tinder at points along the way. But actually, let's not miss the point that God is working. God is using a plan to outwork renewal and restoration and transformation in Naomi's life. The story of Ruth is not God is behind your suffering, nor is it if you believe in God enough and you have enough faith, you will never suffer. It is not God will give you all your dreams if you pray hard enough and you will get the plan A life that you've always wanted, which is a spot that Naomi remains a widow without sons for the rest of her life. But the message of God is that God enters into our brokenness. That he enters into the unexpected disappointments of life. And not just that he enters in, but he starts to breathe life. He starts to breathe hope and joy into the darkest of places. And that's what we see, right? You know, here's Naomi. She's come back with nothing. She's in bad shape. She doesn't seemingly seem to know what's going to happen next. And, And yet... Yet in the middle of it, in the middle of calling yourself bitter, which is quite a dark place to be, like suddenly God starts to work. God brings Ruth 
this incredible relationship of love and companionship and care. And then God brings Boaz along and he says, like, it just so happens. It just so happens that God brings the right person in the right time in the right way. Now, and even though we might sort of struggle to understand the role of Boaz as kingsman redeemer, and it gives us like questions about the role of men and women, we shouldn't miss why it's here, which is to give us a picture. And it's a picture of Jesus. You see, what, what Boaz actually does along the way is he takes her debt. He takes the injustice, he takes the brokenness, the consequences of all that's gone before, and actually is enabled to redeem it into a new thing. See, Boaz actually gives us a picture of Jesus because he helps us to understand what Jesus comes to do. God comes to all of us, right, in Jesus, to deal with the pain and the shame and the junk of our past, with the messes we've made, with the decisions we've made, with the brokenness that we felt. Like on the cross, Jesus deals with that. He pays the debts. He absorbs the mistakes. He takes the justice. On the cross, Jesus absorbs the consequences so we don't have to, leaves it behind, pays our our debts so that we can be free. Now, I know that's like big theological language. It's like, oh, I've heard that a million times. But the whole point is that actually our bad stuff that we've all experienced and lived with is able to be left at the cross. We get mercy. We don't have to live with it anymore. But it's not just the past. It's not just that Boaz and Ruth come to deal with Naomi's past. They actually start to bring hope for a future. You know, I've, I've never experienced myself the pain of losing a spouse or two children but I have watched it firsthand when I was um, newly ordained as a pastor I'd moved to a new city a new town really and I'd never done a funeral before but I woke up one morning to the tragic news that two girls two uh, uh, Olympic hopefuls from our town had been run down outside uh, of their running club by a drunk drunk, uh, driver And I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what to say, but I went down to the school because not only did one of the girls live 10 doors down the street from me, but her mum was a teacher in the school. And so I went down to the school and people were weeping. They were mourning, they were grieving. They were just in shock, honestly. And I went to the church and when I got to the church, the mum and the dad, who would not have called themselves Christians at that point, were there lost, broken, just sitting in this senseless shock of the moment, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And honestly, I didn't know what to say and I didn't know what to do either, but fortunately someone had said to me at seminary, the best thing you can ever do in a time of grief is the bigger the grief, the less you say. And I sat, and I sat with this couple and they weeped and we wept. And we gathered the whole town that night and the night after, and the whole town wept and grieved and mourned. And for week after week, I just kept sitting with this family as we had to plan a funeral for their 16-year-old daughter. It was awful. And it just seemed so senseless. Like It seemed like there was just no way out of it. Like What was the point of this death? It just seemed to achieve absolutely nothing. Like Why did it happen? And eventually, we gathered like eight, 900 people for the funeral. And I don't have a neat answer to it, but I can just tell you that God was there. God was there in the middle of it. The family knew that. We knew it. We felt it every single day. Maybe even in this room, some of us have experienced that just huge shock and trauma and grief. 
Maybe it feels just senseless. It feels like it has no purpose. It feels like there's no good that could ever come out of it. But I want to just show you a glimpse of what is possible because it's what God seems to do through Naomi. You see, it's into that shocking grief that God starts to write a new story. Like he, he starts to breathe life. It wasn't the life that she expected. It's not the life that she wanted. But, but nonetheless, God is doing something to redeem the situation. You notice this. He meets Ruth, and then Boaz gets married to Ruth. And then they, they give birth to a child. And Naomi becomes a grandmother. I think one of the most beautiful verses that I know of in the Bible is Ruth chapter 4.16, when it just simply says, we heard it a minute ago, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Just, just imagine this picture for a minute, right? She's lost everything. Life has gone to plan Z, Z, Z. She's got like nothing that she thought she was ever going to get. There's just this utter sense of desolation and brokenness. She's lost her children. And then as she's invited God into that mess, as she's invited God into that pain and bitterness, just look at what happens, right? You can imagine her taking this little baby, maybe saying like, just, just give it to me. Like blowing raspberries in his belly, rubbing a nose in his like little fat neck rolls, I don't know. Tickling his toes, letting him vomit all over her and then fall asleep, you know. It's, it's not that the loss has gone right. The loss and the grief and the pain, they're all still there. That still absolutely happened. But it's just that there's this shoot, this new beginning. Something is growing out of the disaster. I can almost imagining her, imagine her just closing her eyes. Just whispering, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you that there was more that I had yet to see. Thank you that I hadn't seen the end yet. There was more that you wanted to do to bring hope into my darkness. More that you wanted to do to redeem and bring joy even into my pain. I just hadn't seen all of it yet. You know, um, every number of months, I write with Laura, a prayer newsletter that goes back to all our friends and family in the UK. And we always just tell people how wonderful you all are and how, how good you are and how great it is to be here and just the occasional prayer request for tough stuff that's going on. And every time we write, the first person who always replies to our prayer newsletter is the mum of the schoolgirl who died. And I don't know, honestly, today if she would call herself a Christian. I, I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that every time that we write, every time we write, she's the first person to respond. And this is what her response always said, I'm so thankful that we know each other. I'm so thankful that you walked with us in the darkest moment of our life. I'm so thankful that God was there. And she always goes on to tell us like these very sad but beautiful stories about what God is doing next. And I don't think she fully has the language for it. She doesn't fully have the gospel in her worldview, but she can see that God has been writing a new story, which is wooing them, drawing them into a new story and reality. You see, when we face tragedy, when I face it, when you face it, there is a reality that we don't know the fullness of what God wants to do next. That there is, there is somewhere always more that God has yet to show us of the redemption and the beauty that he wants to birth even in the sadness of pain that he didn't cause. 
Something more is yet to happen. But you see, it's not just that it's on earth, because I think it's when it's on earth, there's something beautiful that we need to, we need to see, but, but it's actually even an eternal thing. You see, on, on earth, Joseph goes on and he says, doesn't he, if you know that story from Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, Genesis 50, when he's taken into slavery, when he's like beaten up, when he's left almost for dead, like he goes on to say to his brothers who put him there, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There's a lady called Grace Al-Zubbi. She's a Palestinian Christian who lives in Bethlehem. She knows absolutely lots about trauma and pain. But she says this, when we commit our lives to our faithful God, he will use our abilities and skills he's given us to make something beautiful out of our lives. In a time when Christians are struggling to survive in the Middle East, the story of Ruth reminds me that I have an indispensable part to play in the work of the kingdom of God. I boast that Ruth is my ancestor and that God promises manifested in her life also applied to me, but even to a greater extent through Jesus Christ. The life of Ruth reminds us that God does not forget our sorrows, but instead he understands the difficulties we go through on a daily basis. As we deeply meditate on the example of Ruth, may we never lose sight of a faithful God whose hesed love often surprises us. You know, I don't think that God ever promises that we will get exactly what we want. I know for some of us, this is a difficult story because it's actually about spouses and babies and that's actually the source of pain that we feel. But what I do know is that there is more of God's redemption. There's more of his healing. There's more of the hope that we've yet to see that he wants to lavish upon us and show us if we will allow him into our pain and our grief. But it's also even more than that, a a bigger story. You see, the story of redemption is never actually limited to one year or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. The story of redemption that God is writing in all of our lives is actually an eternal story. Right? Just, Just look at this. And the bit that I didn't make Nira read because it's full of horrible names, right? Ruth 4, right at the end. This is what happens next, right? This is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of... King David. What? What? But actually, that's not the end of the story. It goes on in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, like the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Here's the genealogy, which is exactly the same. Matthew uses it. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, a prostitute, by the way. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, who was the Moabite. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Okay, where's he going? Carries on. Right? David was the father of Solomon. Verse 15, he carries on down. Elihud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of, anyone know? Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Do you see it? Like out of the most ridiculous, seemingly senseless tragedy is the salvation of the world. God is using evil against itself 
to bring about the salvation of the world. From Obed to Jesus, from tragedy and unexpected son that God uses to bring transformation to the world. The ultimate ending you see in the cross is always victory. It just might be further down the line than you know it to be yet. You see, when Jesus died, they nailed him to a cross, right? He literally died there. They pierced his side. It was tragic. It seemed senseless. It seemed like defeat. Everyone thought it was over. Except that three days later, in the tragedy, in the pain, and in the grief, death hadn't won. Death hadn't won because Jesus walked out of the tomb. He walked out with his scars. You notice that? He walked out with the, hand, with the holes in his hands, but they weren't signs of defeat. They were actually signs of victory. He used evil against himself. In death, he defeated death. In pain, he removed pain in order that we could have an eternal story. And that's the bit I want you to, to grasp hold of if you take nothing else, is that there is more. It's an eternal more. It's a heavenly more. The promise is that in the end, when Jesus returns, that we will spend eternity with him. If you notice in Revelation 21, almost the last words in the Bible, this is the promise of what Jesus will do for you one day. He will, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's the promise. And I don't honestly know for every single one of us whether we will see like the full healing and redemption of our situations and our pain before we get to heaven. I don't know that. I don't know you all. But I do know that one day we will look back on the other side of eternity and we will look back at earth and we will go, some of that really sucked. But actually, in light of everything that has now happened, in light of eternity... It's okay. God was working a plan. And so I'd love us to pray. Um, I'd love us to pray for a few minutes because I, I would imagine in this room there are some of us who know pain very significantly, that it's our living experience, that some of us are carrying trauma and fear. Some of us have grief and loss, and we have questions. God, where were you? And so I'd love us just to pray where we are. Um, and so just where you are, if you're comfortable, just, I just invite you to just take a comfortable posture to pray for a moment. And as we do, I, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And the Spirit of the living God. The God who is deeply working all things for good, ultimately. And just wherever you are, if, if this is your uh, lived reality, I just want to invite you to, to just welcome God into, into that moment, if you can, if you feel brave enough to. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. 